this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is still a revolutionary act. So I'm going to get right into it this week because there's just been so much going on. Oh my gosh. But I am very happy today because my New York Giants finally won a game. Yes, anyone who knows me knows that I am a big New York Giants football fan. I grew up in Jersey, 15 minutes from Giant Stadium. So we've been terrible for the last, oh, I don't know, four seasons. Eli Manning has passed his prime. We made a switch at quarterback. Our new first round draft pick, Daniel Jones from Duke. We call him Dan Chise now. He is the Dan Chise in New York City. Brought us back from 18 points down at the half with that unbelievable comeback win. So I'm happy. I have hope again in my New York Giants. So I, I do these uh, um, podcast episodes on Mondays. So it's usually after Sunday football, which is a big part of my life. It's part of how I decompress. I'm a huge sports fan. I play fantasy league. I kicked ass in my fantasy league this week, too. So it's all good on the football front. Unfortunately, Saquon Barkley, our running back, got hurt, which is not good. He's out six to eight weeks, but he'll be all right. He'll be back. Not a knee injury. didn't break anything, just a high ankle sprain. So I'm happy about that. Uh, on another note, I um, since last week's episode, I traveled down to Charlottesville, UVA, and um, spoke on a election 2020 panel with Jonathan Martin of New York Times, Matt Lewis of the Daily Beast, and Jamel Bowie from, uh, I think he's with the New York Times also. He's on CBS a lot too. I didn't really know him as well as the other panelists, but we did a panel on election 2020 stuff uh, led by the legendary political science professor Larry Sabato. So that was an honor. Had a chance to talk a little bit about that and give my thoughts on what I think is going to happen in the election and some trends that we see. So that was fun. UVA is a beautiful campus. And uh, my mom came with me, so she hung out with me. We had a nice resort that they put us up in. And my mom brought her her dog with her, Samantha, who's the best. I posted pictures on Instagram. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should, at the Tara Setmayer, because I post more everyday things and a bit different than Twitter. I don't really argue politics as much on Instagram, but I do post my television appearances, but also kind of more of what I do on a daily basis that shows I'm a normal person. (laughs) So my Instagram account is fun. So that was a good time. And um, I hope to go back to experience some of the wineries in Charlottesville next time. I didn't really have time. We kind of had to go in and out. It's just an overnight trip. But there was an added bonus. So if you guys are regular listeners of the podcast, you know that I always talk about being a Jersey girl and how much I love going down the shore in the summer. Well, one of the staples of being down the shore is the boardwalk and you get boardwalk pizza and sausage and peppers. And there's another tradition in my family that's for most people who are Jersey Shore folks, it's Coors Custard. Coors Brothers Custard and Ice Cream. It's around, it's been around since 1919. So this is the centennial year and I love it. Vanilla custard with an orange sherbet swirl, soft serve on a cone, the best. That is summer in Jersey for me. Well, little did I know that Coors actually has some locations outside of Jersey. I had no idea until we're driving through Charlottesville and I saw a freaking Coors Brothers sign. I couldn't believe it. So we had to stop and get some Coors ice cream, which was really cool. So shout out to Coors ice cream. That was uh, an added bonus to our little trip. Beautiful weather, by the way. It's been really nice. A little hot too, but really, really nice weather here. This time, I love this time of year. There's no humidity in DC. 
after a brutal summer of, of humidity, it's welcomed nice, clear, no humidity weather. September's a great month in, in D.C. So. so a little bit about that. Also, since last week, which is uh, a preview for today's show as well, I had the opportunity to go to the book launch for Josh Campbell, who is a former FBI special agent. He quit basically after Donald Trump started attacking the FBI after he fired James Comey and all the chaos after that. Josh said, to hell with this. I think I can do better on the outside and walked away from a really stellar career and um, decided to go and join CNN, actually, which is where we got to know each other. He is a CNN national security and, and law enforcement analyst and reporter, but he also decided to write a book. And it's an amazing book. It's really riveting. It gives you a a front row seat to the chaos of the days um, leading up to Comey's firing and after because Josh was Director Comey's um, assistant. So he really brings you in. So, I mean, we watched it from the news perspective, but he was there. And his book talks about that and also his other experiences in the FBI. And he's actually critical of some things in the FBI as well. So it's a very balanced book. And he is going to be my guest this week. So we'll talk a little bit more about the book. He's also going to talk about, um, he gives some thoughts about this whistleblower disaster that's going on right now, which is what my monologue today is going to focus on. Um, I I am just horrified and this is weekly, you know, it, it's, it's, it never, every day something else is worse than the next with this administration and with Donald Trump and just the way that he is completely destroying and corroding our institutions. But I've often said that I feel as though he's an existential threat to the Republic. And this latest whistleblower story that has now exploded and more and more information is coming out about it just supports my feeling about this. The Mueller report was bad enough. I mean, it's pretty damning. The problem is that the American people lose interest very quickly. Donald Trump has muddied the waters a lot. And the Democrats have done a really shitty job of explaining clearly why the Mueller report was so damning, why what was uncovered is problematic and basically impeachable. Obstruction of justice, abuse of power, these are impeachable offenses. Any other president would have been out in their ass way before this. But we're not talking about any other president. We're talking about Donald Trump. And we're talking about a Congress that is completely impotent. Um, I just can't believe how incompetent the Democrats have been and how complicit and cowardly the Republicans have been as this president continues to make a mockery and disgrace, disgraces the office of the presidency. So... The big news this week has been, and this has been kind of percolating for the last two weeks, right? It's like been a slow, gradual crescendo to what we know now. We still don't know all the facts, but I'm going to try and lay out some information to talk about what this whistleblower complaint is, why we should care, why this is such a big freaking deal, and also some facts about what really happened with Biden, his son, and the Ukraine. And what the hell is Rudy Giuliani doing running around trying to get dirt on Joe Biden and his son in Ukraine? What what is the president doing pressuring a foreign leader into look into investigating a potential political opponent? I mean, this stuff is nuts. 
And there's been so much misinformation and attempts by Trump and his minions to muddy the waters again, because they've gotten away with so much so far. Why not try and get away with it again? Trying to turn this around as if Joe Biden and his son did something untoward in Ukraine while, while Joe Biden was president, vice president. So I'm so stick with me here because the timeline of what's going on and the facts, you know, this is what you come to listen to, honestly speaking for, you know, I'm going to tell it to you straight and I'm going to back it up with facts. So that's what we're going to do right now. What is going on with this whistleblower complaint? So here's the bottom line. Someone in the intelligence community saw something or became aware of information that was so alarming that they decided to, to file a formal complaint. When you do that, when you work for the federal government, you have whistleblower protection and there's laws that dictate protecting people who are whistleblowers and how that works and different regulations on what the steps are to report a, a whistleblower complaint. It is very rare for people, especially in the intelligence community, to take it this far and file formal complaints. Because, you know, these are very close-knit communities. Even in law enforcement, you know, you don't really snitch on your own kind of a situation. So it's got to be pretty egregious for someone to put their entire career on the line in order to levy a complaint like this. And a complaint against the president of the United States, no less. We're not talking about a supervisor who, like, misused their government gas card. Okay, because you get a lot of those, right? You get a lot of fraud and uh, mis- misappropriation of funds, which is a big deal, not, not to minimize that. But this now, we're talking about presidential abuse of power. And so this is what happened. And here's a little bit of the timeline to kind of get, well, let me finish summarizing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this person files this complaint. And then what happens is it starts a series of events. And the inspector general, who is basically like the internal affairs officer of every cabinet agency, inspector generals are are supposed to be mutual arbiters of um, complaints and things like they investigate. So if there's a problem, they're the overseers. And each in every cabinet agency has an inspector general. And they're appointed by the president, they're presidential appointees, but they're supposed to be non-political. Well, the inspector general reviewed this complaint and determined that it was in fact credible. Not only was it credible, it was urgent. So the next step in in the whistleblower law, it says that Congress shall be notified, shall. That means must, that doesn't mean may, that doesn't mean well, kinda sorta, shall is pretty definitive. Like it must go to Congress. Well, this started in August and by September, and I remember because when I came back from Europe on my birthday, I saw the breaking news when I landed in the U.S. that the that the uh, Adam Schiff, the House Intelligence Committee chairman, was pretty pissed off about the fact that he had put in uh, asking for this complaint. He'd been notified that there had been a whistleblower complaint coming from the intelligence community, and he hadn't received the documents or the complaint to review. So I was like, well, that's interesting. Well, we didn't know any details of the complaint at that point. That was September 9th. So since then, more and more information has come out because people were starting to catch wind of how serious this was because the direct, the acting director of national intelligence, because remember, we don't have a permanent one. Dan Coates resigned in August. We have an acting, another one. He's been blocking Congress's ability to get this complaint. Why, you ask? 
Well, since September 9th, we found out because the, the complaint involves the president and the White House is blocking this, claiming that they, they because it's outside of the intelligence community, they don't have to turn it over. Well, that's bullshit, okay? So now, last week, some more details started to come out about the complaint because this is all supposed to be confidential. But at this point, because, because the Congress is being uh, obstructed by the White House again, people are starting to leak information to the press. What do you expect them to do? I mean, I think that's unfortunate. And it also hurts the whistleblower because I think eventually, and Josh Campbell and I talk about this, I think this person's identity is going to eventually be revealed. I hope it, uh, for their sake, I hope it isn't. But um, now we find out that in fact it involved a foreign leader and it involved a promise, an inappropriate one. Then we found out who the foreign leader was. Of course, I initially thought it was either Putin or Kim Jong-un, but we come to find out it was the prime minister of Ukraine. And the prime minister of Ukraine just newly got elected. His name is Zelensky. And apparently Donald Trump asked eight times, that's what's being reported by the Wall Street Journal, and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post have kind of been back and forth competing on the on the breaking news on the story. I can't remember which is which. But anyway, it's been reported that eight times the president mentioned during a conversation investigating Vice President Biden and his son and his dealings in the Ukraine. Well, this has been something that Rudy Giuliani has been carping about for a couple of months now, and it's been debunked. But. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the timeline of this is and what the facts are. Is Joe Biden, does, is, there, is, there, is there a there there? Was his son doing something he wasn't supposed to? Is there, you know, is this whole conspiracy theory now from, from Giuliani and the Trump people and now being pushed by Fox? Is there something to this? So here's the first thing that you need to know. Back in May, Rudy Giuliani was discussing going to Ukraine. And I remember those news stories. And then he abruptly had to cancel the trip because he was getting a lot of criticism about this trip. The Ukrainians were like, look, we just had an election. We're not trying to deal with your mess right now. This is, these are your problems. So no, you're not welcome here to come over here with this nonsense. So he canceled the trip. Then on July 24th, um, no, I'm sorry, July 25th, Donald Trump the new, the new um, Ukrainian prime minister sworn in, and Donald Trump does one of these congratulatory calls to him. It's this phone call that the whistleblower says, I guess, what, from what we understand, because we have not seen the complaint yet, but this is what's being implied and, and reported. During this call, Trump pressured the Ukrainian prime minister to look into to Joe Biden's son and um, his dealings in the Ukraine. Well, initially, when this was first reported, Trump's people were trying to deny that that ever happened. But then, of course, Donald Trump, after like a day of the news cycle about this, he admitted that, yeah, he brought up Biden and his son to the prime minister of Ukraine, and there was nothing wrong with that. He called it a perfect call, a beautiful call. There was nothing wrong with it. They were talking about corruption. Okay, so now the story's evolving. 
Because at first they were trying to say, oh, this is the fake news making this up. And then Rudy Giuliani went on Chris Cuomo last week and had a bonkers interview. I mean, Giuliani, every time he gets on air, he usually says or does something that's pretty out there. This was one of the most insane, unhinged interviews I've ever seen Giuliani do. I mean, he was all over the place. It was almost like, if you haven't seen it, you can just see clips of it. It was almost like the moment in A Few Good Men when Tom Cruise is badgering Colonel Jessup about the code red. And finally, he just gets he gets Colonel Jessup, who was played by Jack Nicholson, so riled up. He goes, damn right, I ordered the code red, right? Damn right, I did. That's almost the way Giuliani behaved during this interview when he was talking, when he was being pressed by Cuomo. Did you go to Ukraine or try to pressure the Ukrainians into investigating Joe Biden and his son? And at first he denied it. And then he said, of course I did. So now that's out there. (laughs) And then 24 hours later, Trump basically confirmed it. (laughs) So there's that. Well, what was, what were they pressuring him about? All right. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So after this July 25th call on August 12th, this whistleblower files their formal complaint. Well, what happened in between that time? The, the DNI director, Dan Coates, he steps down. And then the whistleblower files the complaint on the 12th. On August 15th, Sue Gordon, who was Dan Coates' second in command, she leaves. She should have been the natural person. She was like a 30-year intelligence professional, career intelligence person, um, well-respected by both Democrats and Republicans. But no, Trump didn't want her, God forbid. He wanted one of his own flunkies. So that's when he nominated this, this representative, Radcliffe, who has no farm, uh, no foreign policy experience, no intelligence experience. He's a first year congressman or second term congressman. Well, there was a lot of backlash from that and he had to pull his nomination. Thank God. Since his only qualification was sucking up to Trump during the Mueller hearings. Um, and then on August 26th, the inspector general forwards the report, the whistleblowers report and complaint to the acting DNI who was uh, somebody else. His his name is McGuire. Well, at that point, John Bolton, on the 28th, before he got fired as National Security Advisor, he meets with the the new Prime Minister of Ukraine in Kiev. That's the capital of Ukraine. On August 30th, Donald Trump considers blocking $250 million in military aid to Ukraine, basically putting a pause on the disbursement. Now, this is a disbursement that was already approved by Congress. So there was no reason for this money to be held up. We've been giving military aid to Ukraine since, well, for years, but more recently since 2014 because of Russia's aggression there and their annexation of Crimea, which was totally illegal against international law. And that's why Russia got kicked out of the G8. So it's really important for the Ukrainians to know that they have they have um, support from the U.S. and their European allies to help them fend off Russian aggression, basically. So people were starting to question, well, what the hell is going on? Why is why is this money being held up? This doesn't make sense. The Pentagon was questioning, like, why isn't this money being released? Then senators started to catch on, bipartisan, both Democrats and Republicans. They started to catch on and go, wait a minute, why the hell is this money being, what, why, what's the holdup? Well, we didn't know yet. Fast forward. Donald Trump was supposed to go to Europe and he was supposed to go to Poland for a World War II commemoration thing there. He ended up not going. He sends Pence. 
Now, he didn't go because of the hurricane, and then it ended up not really affecting the U.S. as much as they thought, but he stood, stayed behind because of that. That was the public uh, excuse. I don't know how true that is now, looking back. Who knows? But anyway, so the deadline, so so Pence meets with the the Ukrainian president himself in Poland on September 1st. Then September 2nd comes, and that was the deadline for the DNI, acting DNI, to send the whistleblower complaint to Congress. So the inspector general reviewed it, said, hey, this is credible and urgent. Now the DNI reviewed it, and the next step is supposed to be it goes to Congress. Well, that didn't happen. So House Intel Committee Chair Adam Schiff was made aware of this complaint, that it was out there, and um, the IG gets concerned. And let me just point out that the inspector general right now, the one that said that this is an urgent, incredible complaint, is a Donald Trump appointee. So before anybody tries to think, oh, this is just some Obama guy or whatever. No, Trump appointed him. Okay. So I don't think he's in on it. The uh, IG, the intelligence IG says, look, uh, the DNI has overruled me and said that they're not going to give you the complaint. So Adam Schiff then on September 9th was like, wait, what? Oh, hell no. (laughs) That's not how this works. So then three House committees launched an an investigation into what Trump was doing, what Giuliani was doing, and whether others were trying to pressure the Ukrainian government into assisting Trump's reelection because they caught wind that something was going on. Because remember, Giuliani months ago was talking about, oh, there's, you know, there's stuff going on in Ukraine and he thinks that there there was help by the Ukrainians to help Hillary Clinton in 2016. There was all this wild shit, right? So they're like, what the hell's going on? Well, next thing you know, then Schiff starts demanding the, the, the DNI complaint. He can't get it. He subpoenas the acting DNI, and the acting DNI refuses to testify. That was last week on the 17th. Then the inspector general goes up to Congress, but he can't really tell the congressman what they want to hear because he's being told by his boss that he can't tell them. He's very frustrated. And the, and, and the White House is all over this, all over this. Well, in the meantime, last week, it come, some of the details come out now, and now the details are in the public sphere. Some of it. We don't know all of it. But we know that it's Ukraine. We know that it was... Uh, um, that he would, they were being pressured about Biden and his son and investigating them. And Trump basically admitted it, but he claims he didn't do anything wrong. So what the hell is the complaint? What are they, what are they alleging? By the way, this week, uh, Trump is up in, in New York for UNGA, the UN General Assembly, which is where every year all the major heads of state head to New York for this big UN meeting. New York is a mess. If you've ever been to New York this week, it's like you don't want to be anywhere near there. Just telecommute or don't go because they shut down the whole city because the Secret Service runs everything and they have all these motorcades and it's it's a mess there because, you know, you have major heads of states, a huge security risk. And uh, Trump is scheduled to meet with the prime minister of Ukraine again this sometime this week. So I wonder how that'll go. We'll keep an eye on that. But what's the complaint? All right, so Joe Biden, many of you may know, had two sons, Bo and Hunter. Bo was the older son, and he was the prodigal son. He was the apple of Joe Biden's eye. Unfortunately, Joe, uh, I'm sorry, Bo, was diagnosed with brain cancer, similar brain cancer to John McCain. It's very aggressive, and he ended up passing away in 2015 from it. 
He has another son named Hunter. Hunter has always been a bit of a challenge. He was the problem son of the two of them. And if you have time, I suggest you go to The New Yorker and Adam Entis wrote a really good in-depth piece on Hunter Biden and some of his struggles, excuse me, and some of his struggles. And um, it's a it's a bit of a soap opera with Hunter and has been for his whole life. But he's been a business guy and he um, he has some international businesses. He was appointed to a board seat of a Ukrainian gas company in 2014. It was very lucrative, paid him $50,000 a month. You know, when you're the son of a vice president or of a political power player, you get these kinds of benefits. Yeah, you know, not it's one. It's part of what goes along with being in the elite. Let's just be honest with that. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and, and Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea got a sweet deal at NBC once for like six hundred thousand dollars a year. She hardly did anything. Uh, you know, Meghan McCain and her jobs. Like you know, people when you have a certain famous last name, there's privileges. So what is the center of the complaint? Well, in In 2014, when the popular uprising happened in Ukraine, they ousted Yanukovych, who was the pro-Russia prime minister, and replaced him with another guy named Poroshenko. Poroshenko claimed that he was going to reform some of the corruption. He was going to be more pro-European Union and not be so aligned with Russia because the Ukrainian people did not want that. No, Ukraine and those countries, they used to be under Soviet rule. They didn't want to be anymore. And so they've been free for many years and they didn't like the idea of so much Russian influence in their country. So Yanukovych was terribly corrupt and corruption is rampant there in Ukraine. Well, they have something called the, the uh, I think it's the prosecutor general. I think that, let me check what the name is. Yes, the prosecutor general. They're like the attorney general. And there was a prosecutor general there uh, who was appointed. His name was Shokin. He was appointed to allegedly look into corruption and try to root it out when the new regime came in under Poroshenko. Well, not to anyone's surprise, Shokin didn't do it. He not only did he not look into anyone from the old regime that got booted out, he didn't investigate them. He didn't prosecute anybody. He didn't do his job because he was in the pocket of who knows So there was an international outcry to get rid of this guy, including within Ukraine. People were protesting. They're like, this guy's got to go. This corruption is terrible. He's terrible. He's got to go. Well, in the meantime, Joe Biden was uh, was designated by President Obama to be the point person to handle what was going on in Ukraine. Because you may remember back in 2014, there were it was in the news constantly. You had all these big protests and all this was going on. And then Russia had the audacity to go in and invade Crimea, which is a little small section of Ukraine, and take it back. Well, that was nuts. We didn't really do anything about it other than kick kick Russia out but of the, G, of the G8. But the international community was pissed off. And that's partially, again, why we send them money and try to support them to make sure to hold Russia back at bay. Russia, of course, wants to get the rest of Ukraine, but the international community won't stand for that. So in 2016, part of the conditions as the other European countries and the IMF, the United States, they're like, okay, we'll help with foreign investment. We'll do loan guarantees and things to help rebuild Ukraine. But you got to get rid of this prosecutor general guy. This guy's terrible. He's corrupt. He's not doing anything. And he's not reforming, helping with the reform in the country. If you're serious about these reforms, we're not going to give you guys money until you reform. So Joe Biden 
went over there and basically laid down the law and said, look, if you want the billion dollars in loan guarantees, this guy's got to go. And he was eventually fired. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, he was voted by, it was, there had to be a vote of no confidence in the Ukrainian parliament in order for this guy to be fired. He, they don't just remove him. There had to be a vote. So 289 members of the Ukrainian parliament voted no confidence and got this guy and this guy got removed. What Rudy Giuliani and Trump and now his minions are trying to say is that Joe Biden pressured Ukraine at the time to remove this prosecutor because the company that that Hunter Biden was on the board of, it was called Burisma, some gas company, was under investigation by this this, uh, prosecutor. But that's not true. That's completely false. It is true that Burisma was briefly looked at, but that was before Hunter Biden joined the board. And it wasn't even directly involved with Burisma. There was another company that was like an ancillary of that. So it had nothing to do with Hunter Biden. The, the investigation was long dormant, done way before Hunter Biden was uh, on the board and before Joe Biden never went there. So it's absolutely 100% false that Joe Biden went to Ukraine to pressure them to get rid of this prosecutor general because of his son being on the board of this company. It's just the facts don't bear it out. And the prosecutor general that came after that guy, after Shokin, his name was Lutsenko. He confirmed this in an interview with Bloomberg. He said, look, Joe Biden, there was no wrongdoing by him or his son. None. They were definitely not involved. So he confirms it on top of it. Well, Rudy Giuliani befriended the Shokin, who was pissed off that he got booted, right? He's a pro-Russia guy. There's all kinds of, of um, corruption there. Rudy Giuliani ends up meeting Shokin because of these two people, these two businessmen. They're Soviet-born businessmen, but they're now American citizens. They live in South Florida and conduct business in South Florida. Why is this relevant? Well, first of all, South Florida is very well known for Russian mob. There's a lot of Russian mob in the Miami area, a lot of Russian mob along that coast there, all the way up to West Palm Beach, especially in places like Sunnyvale and like that. Also, um, so it's well known, it's well known. So these two guys, uh, their names are Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Rudy Giuliani has all kinds of international business interests, including in Ukraine, by the way. And whenever Donald Trump, he's got the nerve running around, some nerve claiming other people are conflicted or corrupt. Whenever you hear Donald Trump saying things like that, just know it's like projection to the nth degree, because whatever he's doing is 10 times worse than whatever he's accusing somebody else of. I guarantee it. And this is a perfect example of that. So Joe Biden is not exactly, he makes mistakes and he's um, not the, you know, not a perfect guy. But one thing he's not known for is being unethical or trying to enrich himself. Biden is one of the poorest members of the Senate. Most senators are millionaires 10 times over. Joe Biden was not. And he lived very modestly. He took the train to work from Delaware. He's not that guy. So the idea that he's been trying, that he's been using his office to enrich himself or his family doesn't fit the narrative for Joe Biden. You can have plenty of other criticism for him, but that certainly isn't one of them. So 
Giuliani is trying to paint this picture and has literally been on a witch hunt for, for almost a year now, trying to dig up dirt on Biden because the Trump people are scared to death of Biden being the nominee because they know Biden can beat him. So they, Giuliani has been working with these, these two jabeeps named uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Bad dudes. They're under investigation for financial impropriety, shocker, but they're connected in Ukraine. And he claimed that they were clients of his back in the day. But we now know that, yes, not only are they clients, but they've been his back channeling the liaisons to the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian authorities. You're not really allowed to do this. What the hell is the president's personal lawyer doing, doing rogue foreign policy involvement with foreign policy stuff to try to influence an election? This is like not okay. So these two guys, they, um, they have a gas company that they set up and the, the one Lev Parnas, I suggest you Google him, P-A-R-N-A-S, Google Parnas election fraud. Um, him and his partner, they set up this, this Ukrainian energy company and they get a million dollars transferred into their business account and 300,000 of that or so, 300, I think 25,000 ends up at a Trump super PAC. They never report where the money came from originally because they're not sure. Was it foreign money that was just deposited into this account? Does this company really exist? Is this just money laundering to, to hide foreign money? Who knows? But Russians are well known for doing this money laundering through LLCs they set up. So this is a problem. This was uncovered because he was sued by someone else who was, I guess, he swindled money out of, and it came out in that lawsuit. So there is a current federal election complaint investigation going on right now into these two guys and where the hell this money's coming from. Because they not only gave money to Trump, they gave money to other Republicans too, half a million dollars. So these guys are bad news. But they had, they've been assisting Rudy Giuliani in these back-channeled meetings with uh, Ukrainian authorities trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son. That doesn't exist. But these people are corrupt. And this Shokin, who's, who's upset because Biden, he thinks Biden got him fired to protect his son, which is just not true. He's like, yeah, I'm going to say it is. I'll work with you on this. So that's Giuliani's source on it. When everyone else who's been involved in this has said that the Bidens had no, this, this has nothing to do with them. Yeah, this guy's trustworthy. Then... Giuliani had like five meetings set up by these two guys in different countries with Ukrainians still pushing this investigate the Bidens. Well, then you get a new government. So this Zelensky comes in in April and well, he was elected and then he was sworn in later. And there's this um, Ukrainian oligarch who ended up kind of putting going into self-exile in Israel because he stole billions of dollars from a bank in Ukraine not a shocker, but he's friends with the new president because the new president of Ukraine, this Zelensky, has no political experience, but he was a comedian and played the president of Ukraine on television, on a television show, like a Ukrainian version of, of West Wing. I, I should you not. This is true. And this guy, this, this um, oligarch, owned the television station that aired that show. So that's how they know each other. So this, the president basically owned, uh, owes this guy his career because everyone in Ukraine knew him because of this famous show. 
Well, these two Jabeeps, Parnas and Fruman, they were going to try to get Giuliani a meeting with him and to get him to set up a meeting between Giuliani and the new Ukrainian prime minister. So they're still pushing this. So they go and they lie and get the meeting because they're claiming they all they want to do business with their energy company. Once this oligarch finds out that that's not the case, that they just want him to be a liaison to set up a meeting with Giuliani and Zelensky, he gets pissed off and tells them to get the hell out. No, I'm not going to do that. So it doesn't go well. What do they do? They turn around and claim that the oligarch threatened their life and file a complaint against him. Giuliani starts tweeting against him, saying he's a bad guy and all this stuff to discredit him. (laughs) This is unbelievable, right? You're not going to hear this on Fox News. You're not going to hear this on conservative radio. But these are the facts. BuzzFeed did an excellent story exposing these two guys, explaining who they really are. So feel free. That's my reference on that. And a couple of other media outlets have done exposés on these two guys. The New Yorker does that long story on Hunter Biden. You're welcome to read that because that gives you some insight into what happened and whether Joe Biden has ever gotten involved in Hunter Biden's businesses. They say they have an unwritten rule that he doesn't because he doesn't want to know. May or may not believe that. I mean, you know, who knows? Obviously, that's not the case with Trump. And we know that he's involved in everything. But that's what Joe Biden claims. Maybe, maybe not. But even still, doesn't matter. It had nothing to do with the policy that was an international coalition of agreement that that prosecutor had to go in Ukraine in 2016. So these two guys also lobbied members of Congress to get rid of the Ukrainian ambassador at the time because she was like, what the hell are these people doing with the shadow diplomacy? They got to go. They're consorting with people who are corrupt and what's going on. So they went to Pete Sessions, who, by the way, was one of the Republicans in Texas who lost in 2018. They went to him and they complained about her and said, oh, she's not sufficiently loyal to to the president. So they pressured the, the administration to relieve her of her ambassadorship. The State Department claims that her three years was up, but we know that she was pushed out. This is nuts. So Trump wants to talk about corruption. Do we really want to go down that road? And I don't understand why the Biden campaign isn't coming back a bit stronger on this. They need to start listing all of Donald Trump's very shady associations with Russians and Ukrainians. You know who else was um, involved with shady Ukrainians? Paul Manafort. Remember him? Yeah, Trump, Donald Trump's former campaign manager, who's now spending seven and a half years in jail, partially because of IRS violations, because he didn't report illicit money he got from overseas. Paul Manafort worked for Yanukovych, the corrupt leader that was ousted, that was pro-Russia. Yeah, he worked for him. And they found a black ledger in 2016. Well, I don't know when they found it, but it went public in 2016 that that Paul Manafort was written in this black ledger that for Yanukovych, who documented all the people he was paying off. That's why that's why Paul Manafort has stepped down as the campaign manager, because he got found out. And that was the beginning of the end. Now, Giuliani is running around trying to claim that uh, that was a plot by the U.S. embassy in Kiev to help Hillary Clinton, that this is this this black ledger was made up and that the embassy you, you uh, forced people in Ukraine to leak it to help Hillary and hurt Trump in 2016. Really? <sighs> it wasn't fake. It was real. And Paul Manafort's in jail. Come on. So <laughs> that's what's really going on here. That's what's happening. 
Donald Trump is the one who has questionable business dealings with Deutsche Bank, who's known for Russian money laundering. Donald Trump is the one who appointed our Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, who was the vice president of the Bank of Cyprus, which was basically shut down because of money laundering with Russians. Donald Trump is the one who sold a house to a Russian oligarch for $95 million in West Palm Beach when the house was only worth 40. Donald Trump is the one who has all kinds of shady associations with Russians and wanted to do deals in Russia. Donald Trump is the one whose son went around saying that if it weren't for Russian money, they wouldn't, they, the, that was what's propping them up in 2008. Come on, the list is very long. Donald Trump is the one whose son and campaign met with Russians looking for dirt on Hillary Clinton. Really? You're going after the Bidens for corruption? Get the hell out of here. Donald Trump was the one who has, there was so much inaugural money, questionable inauguration money from the inaugural committee. That's all under investigation too. There's been all kinds of Russian and Russian oligarchs swimming all over the place with Donald Trump. But I'm telling you right now that the Democrats better get off their asses and do a better job. This is impeachable. George Conway and Neil Katyal wrote a piece in the, New, in the Washington Post explaining why this is worse than the Mueller report and absolutely impeachable. My good friend Tom Nichols, fellow Never Trumper, he wrote a, another piece in the Atlantic outlining why this is impeachable also. I encourage you guys to, 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 to read them. I mean, if, if, this isn't, if this is not enough for impeachment, then what the hell is? Come on, people. What are we doing here? I don't care if the Senate's not going to convict. It is the duty of this Congress to bring this and make this case for the American people. I'm sorry. Only 19% of the American people were in favor of impeachment before the impeachment hearing started with Nixon. By the time they got through them, it was over 50%. But the Democrats got to have to get out of their own way. And these freaking coward Republicans, you know, if Donald Trump didn't do anything wrong, everything was above board, release the transcript of the phone call. If you claim it was just a beautiful, perfect call, well, let's hear it. We're not saying you should do that for every call, but these are extraordinary circumstances now. I'm sorry. They are. If you have nothing to hide, then be transparent. These are not, this is not how you behave when you're innocent. It's just not. So that's what's going on. Those are, uh, those are the facts. And don't be misled by the bullshit that Fox News and, and conservative radio are trying to feed you about this. They are, they are completely lying about it and misrepresenting the facts of this case. Justsecurity.org has an excellent explainer on the Biden controversy or lack thereof, the fact that there was no there there. And like I said, BuzzFeed and others have um, interesting exposés on these two guys that Giuliani's running around with that have been doing the shadow diplomacy with the Ukraine totally corrupt, completely inappropriate, and it should not stand. These are, this is exactly what, getting a president of the United States soliciting foreign interference into their election is a freaking high crime and misdemeanor. Point blank. That is not allowed. And we cannot as Americans stand by and do nothing. We can't. So that's, those are the facts. Just the facts, just the facts. And, that, and, the, and that's the truth about what's going on. So 
I want to bring in Josh Campbell now so we can talk a little bit more, get his thoughts on this whistleblower situation, and uh, talk about his book, Crossfire Hurricane. Next up, Josh Campbell. I am pleased to welcome back to Honestly Speaking my friend and colleague Josh Campbell, who is not only a former special agent at the FBI, but he's now a CNN national security and law enforcement analyst and reporter and new author of the book Crossfire Hurricane Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI, which I had the pleasure of writing a blurb for. I was honored to do it and I had a chance to read the book before everyone else. So I was super excited when it finally came to print and now everyone gets to read this amazing book. Josh Campbell, welcome back to Honestly Speaking. Thank you so, so much. It's so great to be here. So before we get to the book and we talk a little bit about um, James Comey, your former boss, who I had a chance to meet last last week at the GW book event, my alma mater. I was thrilled to be there. Uh, I got to we got to talk a little bit about what's happening in the news with the president and this whole whistleblower saga, because as someone who worked in the national security space, the national law enforcement space, watching this whole thing unfold has to be horrifying to you. And you spent about a decade, right, in the FBI? That's right. No, it, you're right. And in, in two respects, because there's the act itself. So there's, you know, reporting that suggests the president was trying to pressure the government of Ukraine into investigating a political opponent, into mm-hmm. investigating Joe Biden. So that itself is stunning. I mean, that should, you know, give us all pause uh, to think that, that that would happen. What is also concerning is that we are now seeing the president use the same tactics that he used during the Mueller investigation to try to undermine uh, someone in inside the intelligence community. There's reporting of this whistleblower uh, who has reportedly come forward to provide information about something troubling that he or she saw, uh, but that is currently being blocked right now by the executive branch from getting to Congress where that kind of information is by law supposed to get to. And so, you know, just uh, this week, you know, today we heard the president calling this person, this whistleblower, a partisan, uh, saying that this person, you know, is is a political person without even knowing who it is. Uh, But then secondly, he's returning to that witch hunt link that we've seen in the past, saying that this is nothing more than what he's calling the Ukraine witch hunt. And so what's concerning for me, and this is essentially the theme of my book, Mm -hmm. is that these political attacks on these agencies, uh, there are serious consequences, and it appears as though we are on yet another 2.0 iteration of what we saw with Mueller. Well, that could be uh, a good or a bad thing, because even though Mueller's investigation yielded quite a lot of information that was damning to the president of the United States and his operation, and his campaign, it became so drawn out and complicated that the American people kind of yawned. And I thought that Democrats dropped the ball and not being able to put a message together to explain why the president's behavior that was uncovered during the Mueller report in during the investigation uh, should matter and is impeachable, in, in my opinion. And I'm hoping that the Democrats don't uh, muddy it up again, because what's going on right now is very serious, as you said. I mean, when we have mechanisms in place to protect whistleblowers, when a whistleblower comes forward, especially someone in the intelligence community, which is very, very secretive, close-knit, People don't really do this. There's a lot of risk to their careers if they do it. They felt it was egregious enough to put their careers at risk. And that system 
is being completely thrown out the door, just like everything else. I just, this is ongoing, you know, as you and I talk and every day more and more information is coming out and, and it is leaked through the press because the system, the whistleblower system is breaking down because of Trump's obstruction. But I just, uh, it's just unbelievable that Donald Trump of all people is questioning the patriotism of this whistleblower for coming forward with the information they have. Do you think that, um, I, I think Trump knows who it is. And I think it's just a matter of time you know, before it gets leaked. No, I, I agree. And, and what a travesty that would be if that information okay. got out. Because think about it. You know, the president is, is basically returning to this witch hunt lingo. Uh, you know, we hear his allies now, uh, the Republicans in Congress, saying that this is the deep state in action. Oh. We heard members of Congress on TV saying yeah. that. But think about what this person did. This person went through the proper legal channels uh, that are there in order to ensure that wrongdoing is reporting. I reported. I remember when I was, you know, in the FBI, I had to sign a certification form every single year that said that not only was, you know, did I understand that it was uh, required, you know, uh, my option to report intelligence abuses that I see, it was mandatory. All employees of the intelligence community, they are mandated that they must report anything that they see. And so what this person did was reportedly go through the correct channels uh, to the inspector general, and now that information is being blocked from getting to where it needs to go, which completely runs counter to this deep state narrative, because if it was someone that was hell-bent on bringing down Donald Trump, they would have leaked it to the press or, you know, gotten it out in some, right. you know, some other way um, in order to discredit him. But this person afforded them, him or herself the t- legal tools that were available. This is not the deep state, but that's what we're going to continue to hear, I, I'm, I suspect, is this continued campaign of attack against these agencies, against the intelligence community. And as you mentioned, I suspect this person's name will get out there. Uh, you know, the president today was on his favorite, you know, communication platform uh, saying, questioning where this person's even from, uh, like, like questioning yeah. their nationality, yeah. and then saying that you know they're not loyal to the, to America because they presumably reported wrongdoing by the president, which again just makes no sense. But this person is in the crosshairs now. And uh, yeah, and you actually have a whole chapter in your book called Deep State where you talk about about that, uh, which is very interesting that people should to check out when they read your book. But you address this whole idea of the deep state and and how it's kind of counterintuitive to what's re- what really actually goes on. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I worry. I just before your interview, I just did a whole explainer about what's happening with this whistleblower and the Ukraine controversy and Biden and this this false story that's being pushed out there. And it's all projection. Trump, anytime he gets this hysterical on Twitter and starts pointing fingers and making accusations, it's usually tenfold worse what he's actually done. That's that's what I've come to conclude from most of his behavior with all of these things. We come to find out later that he's actually the one who's unpatriotic or he's the one that's doing things that are really illegal and untoward. And here we are um, speaking. Well, there's that, one thing yeah. that will clear this. Well, there's one thing that will clear this up, and that is releasing the transcript Absolutely. of this call. Uh, you know, and, and the president says, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. But again, it goes back to if there's nothing to hide, if, if this call was beautiful, exactly. as the right. president perfect. described it, uh, then call. let us see for ourselves. You know, Tara, I, I like to read about beautiful calls. And if it's really that beautiful, then, you know, let us see. Uh, right. But it's the same with Robert Mueller. Remember going back to that, he said, I will meet with Mueller 100 percent. That's right. Uh, but obviously we know that that never happened. And so, uh, you know, that would clear things up. I don't suspect that, that we're going to see that anytime soon. I could be wrong. I mean, they could come out and release it. But even if we do read it for ourselves and are floored, uh, I think that he will then, you know, reverse back, uh, revert back and then attack the people that are inside the intelligence community. Yeah, it's a, it's an, an ugly 
pattern of behavior. He also said the same thing about his taxes, right? Oh, yeah, I'll release my taxes. Right. I'd be happy to. Yeah, okay, don't hold your breath. Um, one other thing that's come up um, in since the last time you and I spoke uh, – was this whole thing with Andy McCabe, who you used to work under. He was the number two at the FBI and then acting director after Comey was fired. Are you surprised that the Justice Department is still trying to pursue some kind of criminal charges against him? You know, I'm torn on this issue um, for a couple of reasons. First, I'll tell you, you know, I think very highly of Andrew McCabe. Uh, obviously, you know, I worked for him uh, inside the FBI. As you mentioned, he was the deputy director. And then when Comey was fired, he became the director, acting director. Uh, and so I was his assist- assistant for a period of time. I think very highly of him. Uh, he had a long storied career in the agency, uh, you know, working to protect threats or, you know, around the world. Uh, the thing that, that gives me pause and, and, you know, I have to divorce my personal feelings uh, from the actions that allegedly took Took place, and so what I try to do is remove the name. So, so regardless of who was conducting the actions that were described, what the inspector general found was that this person had lied to investigators who were conducting an inspector general's investigation, uh, and that is a crime, and that you know that is against the law. And so it's hard for me to stare at those facts and say that you know that anyone, regardless of him or not, should not be prosecuted if they lie to investigators, which you know everyone knows is a crime. Uh, I do think that his case has been politicized beyond belief. I mean, the fact that he was fired a mere hours before he was eligible to retire, and you've had the president of the United States just blasting him, blasting his wife, uh, you know, calling them partisan hacks when, you know, McCabe himself is a Republican. Uh, But, you know, so I I think that there's a little bit of, of, you know, blame, obviously, you know, to go around. I do wonder if this case is prosecuted, if this does go to trial, and Andy has said that uh, he has no intention of cutting a deal with the government because he doesn't believe that he did anything wrong. Uh, so if this does go to trial, I will be interested to see how compelling the evidence is that his lawyers introduce uh, all the Trump tweets, all the Trump mm-hmm. you know, nonsense that's been out there blasting him as a partisan. You know, He's, he's going to make the case, look, how could I have gotten a fair shot when the commander-in-chief, the person who runs the executive branch, has been on this campaign of attack against me? That might be very compelling to a jury. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you, and you, that's another thing, aspect of your book where it makes it really good because as an insider, you had a front row seat to a lot of these things and you're very fair in your analysis on the behavior of different people. You know, you're not afraid to criticize where it's warranted and and McCabe is an example of that, which I think speaks volumes to your integrity because you don't allow, like you said, your personal feelings to get in the way on certain things like this because it's tricky. It's tough. He got in trouble with lack of candor, which is one of the worst things that you can be (laughs) accused of when you're a law enforcement officer because your word is supposed to be your bond. But he argues about whether he actually misled investigators or not. I guess that's still in question. But that yet remains to be seen. And full disclosure, CNN has hired McCabe as a um, uh, contributor for CNN as well. So he is now also my colleague, technically. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And also there's an IG report coming out with all of those other things. All Again, another example of where the Trump folks and and, uh, Republicans in Capitol Hill have just been lambasting the FBI and claiming all of this wrongdoing. Well, there's an inspector general's report that's about to come down soon where it's going to lay it all out. And I'll be curious to see what, uh, 
what that says as well. If it's really as bad as Trump and his people say, I suspect it's not. Um, let's talk about. Your- oh, yeah. And everyone's going to be watching that, you know, especially yeah. inside the FBI, because, oh. you know, and, you know, as I talk about in my book, like no one gets a pass. I mean, you know, people uh, should be criticized. I criticize them. You know, the people don't sit in these high positions of power without being able to be criticized. But I think that inspector general report, you know, I'm going to credit that more than I am what's coming out of the White House sure. uh, or, you know, Republicans in Congress, because they have this pattern of attacking these agencies, um, regardless of what the facts show. And so I think we, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we'll wait and see what this independent review says. It may say the FBI made mistakes, uh, in which case, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, but I, I think that this narrative that's been building, that these people are corrupt and, you know, that they're out to get Trump is, is just pure politics. Shocker. Pure politics coming out <laughs> in the White House. But what is what is upsetting is that they are politicizing the FBI and, and our intelligence community and law enforcement, which has not traditionally been the case at this level like this coming from the White House. It's it's uh, not a good look. But let's talk about your book, Crossfire Hurricane Inside Donald Trump's War in the FBI. I think it's a good transition. Um, why the name Crossfire Hurricane? Explain that to the folks who, who have no idea. Like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Right. So this was the code name inside the FBI for the Russia investigation when it first began. So going back to July of 2016. Uh, now, every major FBI case has its own code name. Uh, this is for a couple of different reasons. First of all, for brevity. I mean, this, this case had four different uh, subjects uh, of investigation on it. So you have one kind of overarching case. And so that makes it easy to refer to. But also, you know, for purposes of security, uh, this was kept very tightly held, this investigation. So not everyone knew about it. Uh, so this is just, you know, this uh, kind of innocuous name uh, that was assigned to, to the case. But what's so fascinating is that right in the book, this became a, a metaphor for the FBI itself. This mm-hmm. just chaotic, you know, thrown in the middle of this storm in Washington, uh, you know, and battered by all different sides, uh, this agency, you know, found itself in. Uh, but this was that original investigation going back to four people associated with Donald Trump, who at least the FBI thought initially had suspicious ties, suspicious enough ties to Russia that they warranted investigation. Well, but Josh, it was there was no no collusion, there was no obstruction. What are you talking about? There, this was a complete witch hunt, waste of taxpayer money. I mean, uh, why should anyone think who who's a Trump supporter? Why should they read your book and think that anything you're saying is truthful? I mean, the Trump says that you're all full of it and you're all you're all in on it. Right. Well, yeah, and you left out deep state and secret society. So those are the other. <laughs> no, it's just this, this, this campaign of attack, you know, that's been underway. Uh, but that's the whole purpose of the book is to help the American people understand fact from fiction and what's true and what's just political spin and political noise. What we haven't seen in the history of our country, and I go into a lot of the historical incidents of the White House clashing with the FBI and with the Department of Justice, mm-hmm. we've seen in presidents under investigation before. And we've seen White Houses having con- to continue with you know prosecutions, what we haven't seen is a president uh, willing to put the you know to, to basically put the agency itself in the crosshairs of politicians and to try to destroy the credibility of the FBI in order to undermine a specific investigation. We've never seen anything like that before. Now during the Clinton case, obviously you know they were blasting Kenneth Starr, the special counsel, and going after him personally, but you didn't see them going after writ large the FBI. And I think because there has long been this norm that. 
that these agencies are independent and you know everyone's entitled to a robust defense uh, but but trying to destroy the credibility of these agencies has been something that no politician has really attempted until the age of Donald Trump and again you know you all you have to do is look at the way that that he is uh, you know composed himself throughout his life as far as dealing with enemies uh, you know they say he's a fighter he's not afraid to fight back the problem that I argue in the book is that this is no run-of-the-mill enemy you know we need law enforcement in America to be uh, believed to be trusted mm-hmm. and if he is successful in uh, trying to you know convince uh, his base or a segment of society that these agencies are corrupt and you know engaged in this this witch hunt which as you know is essentially saying they have violated their oath to the Constitution uh, then we're all less safe because people will no longer have faith in these agencies well he doesn't appreciate what an oath is or what it is to uphold an oath he doesn't uphold an oath to anything but himself I mean he's in my opinion he violates his oath of office every single day so why would he give a shit about FBI agents or the honor that that it that goes with that including military I mean he's just despicable in that respect so he there's no honor there for him. Um, in in your in your deep state chapter, um, it's funny because that 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 idea of a deep state. I never even heard that term until Donald Trump. I'm like, what what is with this deep state stuff? Is this like Alex Jones conspiracy tinfoil hat stuff? But in your um, but it's now been mainstreamed. I can't believe some people who I thought were reasonable people are running around calling claiming the deep state is is you know out to destroy the the government. But in your book, you make a good point. You talk about. Um, how Donald Trump uses certain tactics and you refer to the art of war and you say that, you know, all warfare is based on deception. You quote from from the famous art of war, you know, the Chinese military uh, book. And then you also quote from Donald Trump's book where he he also says, one thing I've learned about the press is that they're always hungry for a good story and the most sensational, the better. So the combination of how Trump is constantly using deception he uses attacks he taxes enemies where he's where they're unprepared and then uses the press to amplify it and push out a message what has been the most alarming part of trump's active i i call it propaganda all the time where do you see that as being the most alarming for you like when you're like oh my god yeah, you know where to start. Um, I think because it's because it's There's been so, so impactful. I think in a number of different ways. But yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I think that for me though, it, it comes down to one particular area, uh, and this is something that con- should concern all of us, and that is the FBI's ability to recruit informants to help with investigations, uh, to go where FBI agents can't go. If you think about cases, whether it's a criminal case, a drug case, or if it's a spy case or a terrorism case, the FBI, you know, me as an FBI agent formerly, I couldn't just walk into some terrorist cell or you know walk into some foreign embassy and try to collect secrets. Uh, you require other people, good people, patriotic people that are willing to help the government and, and you know serve as informants. Uh, but what has happened in the last two years is that the president and, and Congressman Devin Nunes, who at the time was chairman of the House Intelligence yeah. Committee, they have now politicized the intelligence gathering process and sources and methods in a way that I think is going to cause real damage if it you know if it hasn't already. 
And that is because you go back and look at their efforts uh, to unmask or unearth uh, this uh, informant that the FBI was reportedly running during the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, uh, you know, to, to gather information to see if there was, in fact, criminality on, on the part of the Trump people. And it was that campaign of attack by Devin Nunes that actually led to this source's name being outed uh, publicly. And one thing I write about in the book is, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I was actually talking with uh, people who were in the field conducting cases to, to get a That's sense right. of how this is impacting them. And I tell the example of one uh, counterintelligence agent who told me that after Nunes and, and you know Trump's folks had outed, had resulted in the outing of that source, this particular FBI agent got a call from a source of his own. Uh, and during the course of their meeting, this person was so alarmed by what he saw on the news that he looked at the agent and he said, I want you to promise me that my name will never get out there in the press. And this agent told me as he was looking at me, you know, it was a very dramatic uh, uh, meeting that he had, but he said it was a promise that I couldn't keep because we are now in a new era where politicians are willing to politicize sources and methods. And so the, the problem there is that how many people out there uh, domestically and internationally who may have been willing to help the U.S. government uh, protect America, how many of them are going to now steer clear, who don't want to sign up for any of that because they might be afraid that their name might be outed by a politician trying to politicize these agencies. That is despicable. I mean, that, that kind of behavior, uh, again, trying to you know, engage in this campaign of attack for, to ensure their own political survival, that is despicable that that is going to impact public safety in that way. Yet that's what we continue. And just circling back real quickly, you mentioned this whistleblower as well. Yeah. I mean, if this person's name gets out there, which I think it will, Me because you know, this is, these are terrible times, how many other people in government that are afraid to speak up about abuses that they see, how many of them are going to now shrink away and refuse to do so because they don't want to be a, you know, a martyr publicly. They want to do their jobs. And so this is having real-world consequences, this entire campaign of attack against these agencies. And, you know, that's a, I think that's a point that isn't made often enough. Um, and I'm glad that your voice is out there to do that. And, and more and more former intelligence officers and, and law enforcement who are now free to speak, uh, I think, are starting to drive those those points home. They, I've been trying to say to people, look, Donald Trump is an existential threat to the republic. And these are the reasons why. And this is another example of that. You know, it's more than just the lying. It's more than just the deception. It's more than his just, you know, horrible character. These are the real world consequences of his behaviors and his attacks on our institutions. And it it literally puts lives at risk. It puts lives at risk and it puts the country's national security at risk every single day. Day. And this is another example. And it's playing out right now in front of us. And I just can't believe how many Republicans who know better are not standing up and speaking out more, defending these institutions. That that to me is just is also despicable because I've been around these folks for a long time and I know that they know better. You know, Devin Nunes is a disgrace. Add him to the list. <laughs> Add him to the list. You know, it, it, it is baffling. I mean, you know, you think in this day and age, it, with all the, the toxicity, with the polarization, you would think that there was one thing that we as a country can unite behind, whether right. you're Republican or Democrat, and that is national security and these agencies. Uh, but again, some, some, somehow they've made this calculus that uh, it, it is more advantageous for them to get in line with the president's attacks than to actually step up and say, no, there are consequences. We need to cut this out. That's not say these agencies are perfect, right? The FBI, CIA, they right, screw stuff up all the time. And they have to be held to account, but it's nowhere near uh, the level of uh, it's, it's nowhere near the level of, of corruption and criminality that they're trying to have the American people believe. Yeah, it's um, 
it's it's just it's it's mind blowing to me. I just I just don't know. That's one of the most frustrating parts and disheartening parts of this whole tragic nightmare that is Donald Trump. You. Um, I think it's important for people to know I know you and people who watch CNN know you, but for others who are just becoming familiar with you, um, what made you decide to become an FBI agent? I mean, some people often say, oh, I was in the military or, you know, I saw a movie and I said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> what was it for you? What made you decide to become an FBI agent? What was your route? Yeah, you know, it all started uh, for me on September 11, 2001. I was in college. Uh, I was about a, a week into my college career as a freshman uh, whenever the attacks of 9-11 happened. And up to that point, I had set my sights on a career in the Foreign Service. I was going to, you know, I wanted to be a diplomat. That was my goal uh, and work overseas. But, you know, as these this attack was underway here, the 9-11 attacks, I really started to focus on not only the first responders, but also the investigators, right? The people who were charged with trying to figure out what happened had just happened and hold accountable anyone who may have been uh, associated or responsible uh, for these tragic attacks. And so I realized then that that's what I wanted to be a part of is, is the, you know, this agency, the FBI, whose job is to protect, you know, from terrorist threats. And so I oriented, you know, essentially everything, the rest of my college career around that um, and was fortunate enough to uh, get an internship in the FBI my junior year. Uh, and then after gr graduating college, uh, came on board full time with the Bureau and just, you know, as I look back on the career. I mean, it was just fortunate enough to serve a number of assignments, both, you know, at headquarters and out in the field offices, uh, but then also around the world. I was, you know, spent uh, quite a bit of time on a special team that worked overseas uh, with CIA and DOD, the Defense Department, uh, you know, trying to, to uh, counter terrorists that were overseas and rescue kidnap victims. Just a rewarding career, uh, but that's how it all began with those terrorist attacks in 9-11. And, you know, kind of looking back, um, I, just, I just think that, you know, every step of the way was rewarding in some, in some respect. Uh, both in the field and then, you know, uh, later in management and headquarters. I think September 11th is really a pivotal point for so many who made the decision to go either into the military or to or into service of some sort um, because of that day was it changed. It changed our country. And um, right. so that's uh, I think people, the younger generations need to really understand that, that the whole never forget is really important. And, um, uh, you know, it's. It's, I still can't believe that, that that happened that day, and, and but it's good to see that it inspired people like you to do what you've done. And you talk in your book about some – you have some really good anecdotes about those experiences overseas too that are that are pretty compelling and fascinating. That that alone is a fascinating read minus – I mean it reads like a spy novel in a way uh, if you're into it and you're like, wow, that's like really cool stuff. Like, you know, these guys really do that right, stuff. Right, right. You know? So you're a pretty no, badass. Exactly. So you're very humble. Josh is very humble, but he's, he's a pretty badass dude. <laughs> Let the, don't let the smile and the corgi pictures fool you. <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. You got to take the edge off somehow, right? Of That's course. <laughs> so last week when um uh, when you were doing your book launch at GW, my alma mater, Go Colonials, you had your former <laughs> boss actually interview you for the first time, and it was fantastic. It was great. And I'd never met James Comey before that day. He kind of was a living legend, and um, he's so tall. He, for people, to, I mean, he, what is he like six eight? He's like really, really six tall. eight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but he's, <laughs> I, I'm glad to see that he's taking a lot of the, this in stride, and he still has his sense of humor. And he tells a story about how you became his assistant, and I, I, I you've got to share it with my audience. How did you become Jim Comey's assistant, his right hand man at the FBI? 
Well, so I'd like to say it was this great professional portfolio and reputation that had preceded me into the director's office, but it actually all started with a tweet. Um, so I had worked in headquarters. Uh, one of my positions during my management tour um, was managing the FBI's Twitter account. It was one of the collateral duties that I kind of sought out because I thought, okay, this would be really cool. You know, the FBI in, in the digital age now working on social media. Um, and so there was, for those fans of the show Parks and Rec, uh, which is now uh, ended into its final season. But I was a huge fan, and there was this character on there played by Chris Pratt. His name was Burt Macklin. He, mm -hmm. he was this wannabe FBI agent, uh, just this lovable character. And so when the show went off the air, its final season, I actually tweeted at the show uh, and you know said, we'll miss you, Burt Macklin. Um, and th that just reverberated around FBI headquarters, not in, in necessarily a good way. People were wondering, you know, wow, that's a little too uh, risque for the Bureau to be you know that out there with the uh, pop culture. Uh, but James Comey, one of his kids, saw the tweet and said, Dad, you have to find out who sent that tweet. Uh, and then so so one day he, uh, he actually, after that, he called and left a voicemail. I wasn't at my desk, but he just said, hey, I want to thank you for sending that, which is actually really funny because, you know, getting a voicemail from the director was, sure. was something else. Um, but then later on, I had this chance encounter with him, uh, even after that, where he was asking for my opinion on something, uh, and I just gave him really critical feedback, um, you know, because I, I knew that that that's that's the, that's what you do, right? When you're talking to a leader, is you know, you don't want to tell the emperor he has no clothes, or, or you know, <laughs> that everything's fine. You want to tell him he has no clothes, um, and so so I did, and then that, that actually led to a job where he said that he wanted you know me to come on his staff as special assistant uh, in order to ensure that he had the ground truth uh, on. You you know, so many of these issues impacting the FBI. And so I was on, you know, on the road with them for uh, about a year until he got fired. Uh, but that's how that, that position began. Oh, the irony, right? Uh, a tweet yeah. got you, got you your job with Comey. Um, and, yeah. and, and we have a, lot, a couple more minutes. And uh, I just, that, that whole idea of, of you being there during the Comey firing, uh, that was the most powerful chapter in your book for me, just because we all lived through mm -hmm. it on the outside. But you were there for front row seat, and I don't want to give away the, um, the the details of that because I want people to read your book and feel what you felt and what everybody felt. But you did an amazing job, really bringing that whole thing to life. Like I felt, I felt like I was right there next to you during that whole chaotic scene. Um, that, that, that part of the book is worth it as well. Just to, if you just read the chapter on what, ha what happened when, when James Comey got fired from your perspective. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I want to bring the reader in the room and that's what I try to do is, you know, everyone saw this on the outside, but I wanted you to hear, see what it was like on the inside. And you did a fantastic job of it. It was, uh, emotionally a roller coaster for me reading that, even knowing how it ends, you know? Um, so, right. you know, <laughs> there's one last thing, like after after Comey got fired, obviously there was chaos in the FBI and, you know, there was a couple months before you decided you had to, you ultimately decided to walk away from your career in the FBI. Um, what was the final straw for you? So this was something that had been building for quite some time where you had the president and you had his allies that, you know, as I, as you and I mentioned and we were talking about earlier, basically blasting these agencies and calling us, the people that were in the FBI, criminals, uh, saying that, you know, we had violated our oath. 
And so what I did, and so many of my colleagues were so frustrated and that then you know built into anger, uh, but I looked around and realized that no one in the Justice Department at senior leadership levels was speaking out. The Attorney General Jeff Sessions was silent. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein was mostly silent. The only time he would speak out seemingly is when he was personally attacked. Uh, but none of them actually stood up. Yeah, it's unbelievable. None of them stood up and said, look, Mr. President, you have to stop this. You cannot continue to malign this agency. And so I looked around and you know I came to that realization that I could probably do more good uh, for the American people and certainly for the FBI by stepping out and just trying to explain the real organization to the public uh, for all the reasons I talk about in the book, you know, and in order to ensure that, that you know, public safety isn't, isn't impacted negative, negatively by this campaign. Uh, and so it was, I remember, you know, one December day, the president is on the South Lawn of the White House uh, and, and goes up to the cameras and just starts blasting the FBI, calling it a disgrace, you know, saying yeah. that the, the American people have lost faith. Uh, and that's, that was the culmination of this month-long, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what do we do about this? Uh, and that was kind of the moment I realized that I can do more good stepping out. And again, just to harken back to what I said earlier, I mean, it's important that the listener understand that, you know, I'm not here to shill for the FBI. I'm not here to say the FBI is great, you know, in everything that they do. They make mistakes all the time, and we hold them accountable. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, it's more about the preservation of public safety and security. And so whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat, uh, you have to understand that this campaign of attack is, is the wrong thing to do. It has real consequences. And then think about the people inside these agencies every day who come to work, uh, you know, trying to do a job, trying to uphold the Constitution and protect a country. At the same time, their boss is calling them a criminal. That, that doesn't sit well. Yeah. You say you talk about in the book how you uh, the day that he tweeted that the FBI's reputation was in tatters, that there were colleagues of yours who wanted to like fire off missives to defend the FBI and defend themselves against these attacks. And you were like, no, 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 don't do that. (laughs) I think that's not a good that would only feed this deep state narrative. Yeah. If they started firing off, you know, missives. Yeah. And this is the only way to do it right. I mean, I couldn't stay in the organization and speak out like I am now. You wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want the FBI. Uh, you know, out there that publicly. And so I just made that decision that I can do more good, you know, for the organization, you know, uh, and the institution as a whole, uh, as well as the American people, ensure that they're not manipulated by politicians and that they understand the truth, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that's exactly what you do in your book, Crossfire Hurricane. Josh Campbell, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Best of luck with the book. Everybody go out and get it. It's an amazing read. Crossfire Hurricane, Inside Donald Trump's War in the FBI. My friend, Josh Campbell. You're a great American, my friend. Thank you. You as well. Such a pleasure to be with you here. Likewise. Keep up the great work. Big thank you again to Josh Campbell for being my guest this week and talking about his book. Make sure you go and get it. Crossfire Hurricane. It is out now. Uh, Before I end the show, I'm going to do a feel-good story. This one touched me because I thought I could relate to this a little bit. It's about this man. His name is Brad Ryan. He's 38 years old. And he reconnected with his grandmother, who's 89. Her name is Joy Ryan. And he has been going around the country with her to visit all 61 national parks. And there's an amazing Instagram account. um, And their story, if you Google them, it's uh, Grandma Joy's adventure and they have visited i think in 28 days they visited 21 national parks but what made this story touching to me was the fact that him and his grandma lost touch for like 10 years because his parents got divorced in 2001 and i guess it wasn't an amicable divorce and she's his paternal grandmother she's his father's 
mother and he lived with the mother after the divorce. So 10 years went by and they didn't really connect and they were really close when he was younger. So he saw her at his sister's wedding years later and made a decision now that he's grown, like I kind of miss my grandma and I want to reconnect with her. So he did. They started talking and then he went and spent some time with her and asked her to help him uh, make the banana bread that he remembers as a kid that she made to share the recipe. And so they started to kind of rebuild their relationship. And during the course of that, she mentioned to him that she wished that she had traveled more. She said, she said, he said, she said to me very matter of fact one day, it's a shame I didn't get to see more of that in my life. I never had the chance to. She basically lived in Duncan Falls, Ohio her whole life. So she'd never seen mountains. She'd never been to the ocean. And he was like, oh no, no, we're gonna change that. So he made the decision to take his grandma to visit all 61 national parks in the US. Now they, they still have some a few to go. And this happened in 2015. So people were wondering, well, like, why is this story viral now? Well, because she lived near the Dayton, Ohio um, mass shooting, the national park that they visited around that time posted their pictures to their um, Instagram and it went viral. People were like, you know, we really need to see this kind of good stuff <laughs> to make our, you know, a, a bright light like Brad is to his grandma. Like, this needs to be seen. It was um, Acadia National Park that posted that. And um, people just appreciated it. So even though their journey is ongoing, obviously it takes a while to do all 61, but uh, they're almost there. And her dream now is to go to Hawaii eventually. So it'll go from a road trip to a plane trip. But what an amazing story. I think that's great that Brad is doing that for his grandmother. And I was very close to my grandmother before she passed away at 79. And we traveled the country together, the East Coast mainly, because she was a professional dog handler and used to go to dog shows. And I would go with her from the time I was five years old until I was about 14. So I spent a lot of time on the road with my grandma and I was her navigator. I learned how to navigate really well. I have a great sense of direction. I can read maps really well, thanks to that experience. And I got to know my grandmother uh, pretty well. But then when I got older, you know, life gets in the way. You don't really talk as much, but I mean, I was still close, but there's things that I wish I could have talked to her more about, like growing up during the depression and World War II and some of those things that, you know, when you're 25, you don't really think about as much as they are as important. So I think my comment here is that if your grandparents are still alive, talk to them. There's so much knowledge there, so much experience, and, and you know, they'll, they'll like it. And if there's any kind of beef in the family, you know, or any kind of gr uh, grievances, work that out. Don't let that stuff go to the grave. Make sure that you get that cleared away and, and uh, not let family squabbles ruin your relationship with your grandparents or anyone in your family. You know, it's, uh, life is precious, so. Uh, I got to have my grandma, my grandfather till he was 90, so he lived a little longer than my grandma, and I made sure I didn't make that mistake with him. You know, in his final days, I spent a lot of time talking to him and, and learning all about things from when he was a kid and about World War II, and just, it was cool. It was really cool. And um, so that's my feel-good story of, of the day. Make sure that you spend time or talk to your grandparents if they're still alive, and uh, good for you, Brad Ryan, bringing some much-needed joy to Grandma Joy. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Be sure to send me a tweet or on Instagram, reach out. On Twitter, it's at honestly underscore Tara or at Tara Setmayer. And on Instagram, it's at the Tara Setmayer. Have a great week. <laughs>